We are 169 days away from the 2023 college football season. This is the We Hate Your Team podcast, a member of the VSN Collegiate Network. I'm Kelly Ford, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Zach King. Kinger, how are we doing this week? Doing great, man. I like to switch up there at the beginning, Kelly. I guess we're not in a week-to-week basis anymore. We don't have any particular event we're covering tonight, so we're just going with the college football countdown. But we're at a great time of the year. We got March Madness approaching. The NFL or the combine just happened last week. We're a month away from the drafts. There is no shortage of storylines here. It's a great time of the year for sports fans. Lots of activity to discuss. It is a great time of year for sports fans. Kinger, we are recording this episode on a Wednesday night. Our typical recording night is Tuesday. However, yesterday, again, Tuesday, time of recording here, I was a little busy, King. I was working the Horizon League Men's and Women's Basketball Championships here in Indianapolis. Looking very fly on the sideline in your nice suit, (laughs) if I do say so myself, Kelly. Well, I appreciate it, King. It definitely is a fun experience, probably one of the the most fun things that I get to do as part of my job working in college athletics. You mentioned it, King. It's March. It's March Madness. Next week, we're actually going to have a college basketball-themed episode in honor of March Madness. Very excited for that one, of course. It's one of the best uh, sporting events on the calendar every single year. But before we get to that, King... We do have some college football to talk about. We're going to talk a little NFL. You mentioned the Combine last week. We're going to talk about that. Happened right here in Indianapolis. And we are very, very thrilled, King, to be joined tonight by a special guest, someone who I've gotten to know pretty well through the Twitter sphere. So much so, King, that we've actually met up in real life a few times. Very uncommon, I would say. I'm always looking to meet my Twitter friends in person, but it just, you know, travel, work, family, all that stuff gets in the way. We have now met up three separate occasions, King, with a plan to do it one more time in about a month. I'm very excited to welcome to the show tonight my good friend in the Twitter sphere and real life now, Tage Seth. Tage, welcome to the show, man. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on today. I've listened to a lot of your guys' episodes. I listened to so many national championship previews before that game. Uh, a couple months ago, and yours was definitely the best with with Parker. You know, really enjoyed that. Gave me a lot of things to look for in, in that game, and have just overall like enjoyed this show as a whole. So I really appreciate you guys bringing me on. Well, Tage, absolutely, and thank you for the kind words. You mentioned Parker there. I know he's your colleague now, as you're a data scientist for Sumer Sports, similar similar to Parker. So we're going to get into that in a little bit. You're also a member of the Michigan Football Analytics Society up there at the University of Michigan. Um, so we're going to get into that as well. You were in a Big Data Bowl honorable mention at the uh, NFL Combine here re- recently with the Big Data Bowl that the NFL does every single year. So you are all over the football analytics sphere, Tage, so you match up very well with what we want to do and what we talk about here on this show between uh, handicapping and, and analytics and just college football discussion topics in general, so we are thrilled to have you. You previously worked for the University of Michigan football team, so Tage, I've really outlined some of the major points. If you don't mind, though, just take a few moments, tell us more about yourself, your background, how'd you get going in the analytics space, where did your passion for football originate, know you're a big NFL fan too, you've got a team there that we're going to get into, maybe King doesn't like it so much, but we're going to touch on that as well. So just, Tage, take a few moments, tell us all about yourself, floor is yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, thanks for uh, letting me do this here. So yeah, I'm, I'm Tage, I am currently a senior 
at the University of Michigan. I did data analytics and applied statistics uh, while during my, my school career there. And then, like you mentioned, I, I did work for Michigan's football team, preparing some analytical packets and kind of just like tools that they could use to better their teams. That was my experience in college football. And then my like more public facing experience was I was an intern at Pro Football Focus uh, between my sophomore and junior year of college working with Eric Eager. And now I have transitioned from Pro Football Focus to Sumer Sports, uh, doing also data science in the football realm, uh, also working with Eric. So I uh, have, have done all that. And like the great thing about working in football analytics compared to like if you're a team, like you can't get the you haven't played anyone yet. Right. Like everything that you do is controlled on your own. I'm in my non-conference schedule right now. And then I'm, I'm looking to expand in the future here as I, I get to playing some better opponents. That is the best analogy I think we've ever had on this show, King. I don't know. I mean, I can't think of a better one. That's awesome, Tage. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I, I will say, so you can find Tage on Twitter, at TageFBAnalytics. If you are following me, K4 Ratings, I can almost guarantee you are following Tage as well already. I mean, this guy is a rock star. He was one of my first followers in the analytics uh, sphere on Twitter when I joined a few years ago. So, Tage, you touched on a few different things there. I want to start with... University of Michigan football. Now that the season is behind us, which for those not familiar, Tage is someone that we've wanted to have on for a long time, maybe wasn't able to make it happen sooner than we wanted to because of his commitment to football at Michigan and his inability to share, understandably so, some of the cool things that he was working on there. So now that we are past his commitment to the University of Michigan football team, Tage, anything you're willing to share, I want to hear about it. What they have you do it on a weekly basis? How was it all set up? Just anything you can share about that experience, I would love to hear it, man. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for college football programs as a whole right now is many staffs don't have someone in their program that can code and can put together data analysis packets that can help them game plan on a week-to-week basis. So I think something that you can get an edge at now in, in college football is putting together these, these packets or these reports that give you information about the quarterback or the team that you're playing against, what they do well against, what they struggle against. And that teams can really use that to game plan and to kind of take advantage of their opponents. You can look at coverage breakdowns, run concept breakdowns. There's so many things out there now that I think that are available to these programs that they're not taking advantage of yet. But when you can kind of dip into the student body and offer them credit or offer them some sort of compensation for working for your your team. I think college football programs can find this this niche here where they can really use data to their advantage to help them get an edge on a week-to-week basis when they're preparing to play opponents. That's a very interesting comment that you made that it still seems like it's an early this is an early adoption process having these analytics teams for most college football organizations, most college football teams. Would you agree with that, Tage? Mm-hmm. Yes, I definitely so, agree with that. So how did the University of Michigan go about implementing this? How did you get involved? Is this something new? Was this something that was recommended to, say, Jim Harbaugh or somebody in the organization? How did Michigan kind of get involved with this and now be one of the leaders in this space? Yeah, so there were coaches on the staff coming from an NFL background where they were able to work with data on a day-to-day basis. They didn't necessarily know how to code the data, but they were able to work with data 
through the data scientists on their team in the NFL. And so that's how they were able to implement it in college, where they could kind of put some of the same processes that they had going in the NFL into the college football program. And then they could they could kind of go from there. So it wasn't like directly working with like the head coach, like Jim Harbaugh or anything. But there were people on staff that were able to utilize the packets that the students were preparing for them to help game plan on, on the week to week basis. So that was my question was, is I was going to ask you, have you had the opportunity to interact with Jim Harbaugh? But I think it's pretty cool that the University of Michigan threw that out there for students. So obviously you being a football data guy that you are, you ran, I'm sure, running towards that opportunity. Was that literally something they just broadcasted out on campus and said, hey, you know, we were looking for people in this space and you had to go through some sort of formal interview process or how did you get yourself involved in that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's actually kind of a cool setup. It's set up through one of the programs or the classes that you can take on campus. And it's not just the football team that students work with. Like students that are interested in sports analytics can work with a variety of teams ranging from both men's and women's sports and, you know, between the uh, the, the profitable and the non-profitable sports. Like there's so many things that, that students can work with on campus, which I think is really cool. So when you enroll in this class to get credit, you end up getting paired with one of the teams on campus. And then that is how you kind of go about getting to the spot where, where you're working with a team. Tage, Kinger and I graduated from Purdue, King, geez, I think it was eight years ago now we graduated undergrad, so we are definitely getting up there. You're, of course, currently a senior at Michigan. Do you know, Tage, this was not a thing at Purdue as far as I'm aware eight years ago. Do you know, are other institutions around the country, or more specifically in the Big Ten, do they offer something similar like this where you can enroll in this data analytics class or, or this data science class and then work with some of the varsity sports teams in the athletics departments? Or is this specific to Michigan? Do you know that? Mm -hmm. I do think this, this is something that's starting to become more popular. I've heard some other Big Ten teams, uh, Illinois, Northwestern kind of come to mind that are having people on staff that are doing data analytics for them through the student body, which is pretty cool. And then I really think that we can see this in, in other programs around the country as well. Uh, Matthew Edwards, when he used to be at Virginia, now he's at StatsBomb, was setting up something pretty similar with his students there, which was which was a really cool way for them to break in. Syracuse has the sports analytics major that I think they're implementing things with, with their football program as well. And then I also think that like a program like Alabama is putting a lot of resources into their sports science staff, whether that's students or whether that's uh, paid employees. But I, I'm, yeah, like you mentioned, like there wasn't much when you kind of look back in the past decade, but it does seem to be growing and growing pretty fast here as we look forward into, into what the future might hold. Ah, uh, Kinger, I was born a decade too early. I, man, I was going to say, Kelly, what. why didn't we have something like this when we were in school? I know you would have been all over that. If we were really smart, King, we would have started something like this. That's how you really set yourself Kelly, apart in this space is doing something, I, being I a trailblazer. Data analytics, you know, that's not my forte. <laughs> that's the math. The math it was a little bit of a struggle for me, as everybody knows. That, that, no, that's funny. Tage, that's awesome. It's so cool. Some of the Big Ten schools you mentioned there, no no surprise. I mean, Illinois, very, very good engineering, uh, very good science programs. Northwestern, a very prestigious academic institution. Michigan, of course, right up there with those other two as well. Um, I want to talk specifically, Tage, to, to, to give our listeners a little bit of specific examples. I want to talk about two because Kinger and I are highly invested in the two that I'm going to talk about. Michigan closed the regular season against Ohio State. Then they played Purdue in the Big Ten Championship game. So 
if you, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. I did not give you a heads up before the episode or recording about this, so I apologize if, if you don't have it off the top of your head. But let's start with Ohio State because that was the game that happened first. This is two years in a row now, Tage. After about 20 years of very few success stories for Michigan against Ohio State, two years in a row now, it seems Michigan and Harbaugh have outcoached, they've outschemed, and they've outexecuted Ohio State. I am willing to bet, at least for this past year when you were working with the football program, that you had something to do with that. So, Tage, you said you put together reports, you know, you, you analyze the opposing quarterback, you analyze the opposing team as a whole, you talk about their strengths, you talk about their weaknesses. I'm also selfishly very curious in your analysis of CJ Stroud because I'm a Colts fan, and it's looking like the Colts may or may not be in a position to draft him here in about a month or two. Um, so, tell me about the Ohio State scouting report. What stuck out to you in there about, hey, I didn't expect Ohio State to be good or bad in this area. I didn't know we'd be able to exploit Ohio State in this area. Just walk us through specifically how was Ohio State, or how was Michigan, excuse me, able to defeat Ohio State for the second time in two years after having done it, I believe, twice in the previous 20? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a great thing to, to bring up. Um, without giving too much away, basically, and I think you can glean a lot of this from just watching Ohio State play as a whole, but also that Michigan-Ohio State game specifically. C.J. Stroud is a tremendous college quarterback. It's a shame that he didn't end up having the, the national championship under his belt because I think he deserved it with, with the way that he played. But I think the, the one holdback about him, and I don't know if this was something he did intentionally or something that's a knock on him, is he doesn't move particularly well when pressure gets on him, and especially when that pressure comes from four pass rushers. Obviously, four pass rushers, getting pressure with four pass rushers is always going to be something that is beneficial to any defense, but I think it affected Stroud more than it affects the average quarterback because those seven defenders that could muddy the water was something that I think confused him, and he doesn't take off and scramble as much as other quarterbacks do. So that was something that I think affected Ohio State in that game, particularly. And then the other side of the ball, Ohio State's main weakness this year was their run defense. And I think like how they defined it, they defended the different types of runs. And like Michigan just like matched up well against that. Like Michigan was predicated on running the ball early and often. And they, they did it well and they could do it with a multitude of running backs. And Ohio State struggled with like tackling and, and letting up explosive runs. And it was almost like, kind of a, a blessing in disguise for Michigan to have to start Donovan Edwards in that game being the more explosive back over Blake Corum because he was really able to take advantage of that lack of tackling that Ohio State had on the perimeter. This is like ripping an open wound or ripping a wound wide open again for me, Tage, but I absolutely love that analysis there. You're spot on with everything you said as someone who watched every single snap of Ohio State all year. Hard for me to disagree with anything there, and I 100% agree with you with the Donovan Edwards piece. It was just, it, it all came together for Michigan, and they ended up, again, two years in a row, proving to be the superior team against Ohio State in almost all, if not all, facets of the game. I'll tell you right now, Ryan Day and his staff have got to figure that out, coming from an Ohio State fan. All right, I'm taking my Ohio State hat off here. Let's transition King. Let's come to you with the Purdue side. Tage, a little different in this game, though, right? Because when it's Ohio State-Michigan, I mean, I'll speak for my predictive numbers, I actually had Ohio State favored in the game um, it, it, by, a, by a, a significant margin, I would say. Almost a touchdown, terms. right, Kelly? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it, it was a significant margin in, in football terms. But so the talent advantage, though, or disadvantage by my numbers that Michigan had in that game, they were a heavy favorite. I think 16 points by my numbers, maybe 16 and a half against Purdue. So how is it different when you're – 
coming into a game as a two-plus touchdown favorite and you're scheming that up with your report versus a touchdown-ish underdog just the week before. Yeah, I think that it, it comes down to variance at the end of the day. When you're playing as an underdog, you want to lean into all the types of things that give you variance, and that's attempting deeper passes that have a wider range of outcomes. They're more often incompleted, which puts you kind of behind the sticks, gives you an, an unsuccessful play, but also those completions are, are huge and, and really game-changing. Or like the things that you can do on defense, rotating coverages can be risky because these are students that don't get to practice as much as NFL players. So if they mess up their rotation, it could give a big gain, but it also can really go on the other side where it, it makes it really confusing for the quarterback. But then when you're a favorite, you don't want any of that stuff to happen. You want to be in control of the range of outcomes that happens in this game and we saw we can we saw that play out in in the in the game against Purdue right like Michigan wanted to kind of change their game plan where they were just going to run the ball they were going to throw shorter passes to make sure that nothing was happening there and then they were going to play off coverages and just allow Purdue to kind of dink and dunk down the field instead of having the opportunity to attempt deeper passes and that's what we saw kind of just play out in that game and and I think Michigan executed it well like Purdue probably play them closer in the first half yeah we hung in there in the first half yeah come on Tej, give us a little credit there yeah <laughs> it was it was impressive i mean the uh I, i'm forgetting the name of the receiver right now but i mean he had to have charlie jones yeah charlie so, jones yeah, was carrying yeah. yeah he was carrying yeah, and and i thought purdue played the first half from my perspective i, I think we were down seven or ten at half i don't remember what it was but then the first or second play of the second half uh, Edwards broke a tackle at the line of scrimmage that looked like it was going to be a TFL, and he ended up getting like a 75-yard game off of it, and the wheels just came off um, for Purdue. And it was one of those where everything had to go right. We were going to have to hit on some of those explosive plays, and, and Michigan did allow Charlie Jones to get loose a little bit, but they did a very good job of, of bottling up the run game. They kept Payne Durham in, ch in check, and quite frankly, Aiden O'Connell missed some throws and had some poor throws in that game and uh, was definitely not one of his, his best games. He obviously had a lot of going on with his family situation at the time. So Michigan, that's the, that was the key to Purdue, though, is, is you want to keep everything in front of you. You know the run game's not posing that much of a threat. Tage, talk us through really quickly. I don't want to uh, bring up any bad feelings or anything, but the the Michigan-TCU game. We talked about it a little bit on the National Championship Preview episode that you mentioned with, with Parker and with Josh, uh, Dog Stats. That was a phenomenal game. I mean, one of the best college football games of the entire 2022 college football season, um, if not going back even farther than that. What happened in that game from your perspective? Obviously, there were some very big plays, very big calls that you could say maybe Michigan was on the, the, the tough end of, if, if you will. But what happened in that game? What did TCU do that maybe Michigan either wasn't expecting or didn't think they'd be able to do to that degree of success? Basically, what went wrong from the scouting report and the script that you guys had from an analytics side versus how it actually played out on that, on that field that day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think Michigan's run defense in that game was one of the, the, the worst performances in, in the Harbaugh era, era. They weren't able to to stop anything from that perspective. And, you know, I, I do think like a lot of Michigan fans came back to the officiating errors in that game. But I think officiating errors are, are become a zero mean over a large sample size. And so like, I don't think you can come back to necessarily that. I, I think that TCU came in 
with that high variance plan that that we talked about where they wanted to get all the explosive plays that they could and then they just really took advantage of the opportunities that Michigan game gave them not only did they get those two interceptions but they turned those two interceptions into pick sixes that really turned the game for them when Michigan was called down at the half yard line on on the deep ball uh they they made sure that they didn't let up the touchdown they they took advantage of fighting hard on on that play and then Michigan missed the two fourth downs as well that like kind of leans into to the the widening the range of outcomes that I talked about earlier so I think all those things kind of accumulating together TCU just taking advantage of their opportunities and then Michigan not having things necessarily go their way led it to to TCU winning that game but like you mentioned like it was a phenomenal game to watch. I th- that third quarter where there seemed like there was like 50 points total scored between the two is like why we love this sport so much. Like nothing can, nothing can beat it basically. I tweeted out during, during that game. It was the end of that game or maybe it was the start of the Ohio State game. Somewhere around there, I just said a very simple tweet. I said, imagine being at a New Year's Eve party and not seeing these college football games. Like it's just like, <laughs> it was, it's mind boggling to me that there is a whole majority of the population out there who was indulging in New Year's Eve festivities, and granted some of those parties probably had the game on, but if you weren't locked into those games, I mean, you missed out. It's as simple as that. Yeah, that was the best, I think, playoff that we've we've had ever. I mean, the, the, the first one was great. The Ohio State, you know, Zeke running through the heart of the South, and then we had the, the Jameis play. But, I mean, those two games back-to-back were phenomenal. I, I think, like, that'll, that'll be the best playoff we, we have in a while. Hopefully not, but it, it's, it seems like it based on how, how close those two games were. No doubt, 100%. Uh, Tage, so you mentioned a little bit earlier about your uh, internship with PFF. You're now at Sumer Sports. You mentioned Eric Eager at both of those stops, someone that, uh, King, I know we're going to try to get on the podcast at a future episode. Tell us a little bit, Tage. I'm very curious, obviously, given my area of interest with the analytics, with the, with the data science. Tell us a little bit about some of your favorite projects that you were able to do, whether that's at PFF as the intern or now at Sumer Sports, which, by the way, I think it's just incredible that you are full-time employed, Sumer Sports, all that, while you're finishing school. It's just, it's absolutely remarkable. Turn down other opportunities uh, to pursue this one, which I think is a home run for you. Just tell us about some of your favorite projects that you've worked on or are working on. Again, if it's current projects, anything you're able to share, if you can't, we understand, but just some of your favorites over the years. Yeah, no, I mean, going back to PFF now, I think my favorite project was something that never saw the light of day. It never had like an opportunity to come forward. It was an entire recruiting analysis done from 2014 to 2020 on college football teams, who they were recruiting, where they were recruiting from, and then like kind of like aging curves for how these players would do at different positions going from high school to college, and then what colleges were doing the best with specific positions, right? So like we, we if we go back to Ohio State, Kelly, like Ohio State is wide receiver U. I, I don't think that's debatable. And like that showed up in this data where if you look at like kind of their expected uh, whatever metric you want to use, wins above replacement that that a team was was going to get from their recruits based on the just the recruiting rating and like where they were from, and then you looked at what actually happened. Like Ohio State showed up number one in like wins above replacement over expected from wide receivers. So that was something that was really fun to do at PFF that like never uh, amounted to to anything like publicly, but it was like a great project that like Eric and I worked on together that was like super interesting. Yes. Okay. So before you go to a second one, and King, I know you're about to hop in here too with something. 
why did that one not see the light of day, Tage? Because yes, it sounds incredible, sounds incredibly fascinating. I would love to see that that data, that report. Why did that not see the light of day? Is this some some politics behind the scenes, or what happened there? I think it was just like it was it was towards the end of my like summer internship, and we didn't for, fully formalize like exactly what had to happen, and like I had like all the code and everything stored in this project. So like internship ended. Uh, then the project kind of died with it, and then it's it's like you know lost somewhere uh, in in my computer file somewhere. But if I am able to find you the uh, the PDF, I'll, I'll definitely send it over. Please do. I would be very interested in that. That is such a shame that that one didn't see the light of day because I've seen all the dozens and dozens of of great projects and reports you put out. That one does sound phenomenal, and it wasn't even in one of them. That's crazy to me. So my first thought from that Tage is is. Every year we talk about recruiting rankings and all the different sites out there that go into evaluating prospects, how they're going to turn out or trying to project how they're going to turn out in college. So we, we know stars matter. If you look historically at you know the NFL draft picks, five stars, there's a pretty high hit rate in regards to their potential to transition in the NFL. At what point do recruiting rankings, would you say, start to maybe fall off or not quite mean as much are we talking you know can you surefire nail the first top 150 guys every year or where's that variance start to say hey you know it doesn't matter if you're ranked number 150 or you're ranked number 400 if that makes sense sorry that was probably a pretty poorly worded question actually thinking about my word salad there no 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 I, I i totally understand i think that's a great question so there's variance everywhere between recruiting rankings is basically what i found because when you think about it it's these 18-year-old kids, 17-year-old kids that are traveling more than 100, 150 miles away from home that have might, might have never even left their hometown before. And there's so much at play once they get to college between the stuff that they have access to, dining hall, parties, all that stuff where like there, there's like so many paths that these, these students can go down when they become full-time college football players. And that's why we see some of the best recruits not pan out in in college and there's huge survivorship bias that plays a role here when we look ahead to the draft we always see like the the trevor lawrence justin field draft oh yeah these guys were the number one number two quarterback prospects in the league the number three through five quarterback prospects could have not even been anywhere near the draft and like that doesn't come up when you look backwards at these rankings but when you're looking forward at them, there's just so many prospects that do really, really well, have great college careers. And then there's lots of them that rank really highly that end up not doing as well. So I think there's variance everywhere. I think as you go further down the rankings, there will be more variance just because there's less wisdom of the crowd from people watching these prospects. It's more a couple people putting in their their ratings to uh, these, these rating sites that get turned into the 24-7 rating as opposed to like hundreds of people that are looking at the top recruits. Very interesting. Just my, it's always fun to me to see when you see those guys that didn't end up getting the eyes on them in high school, the three stars that end up turning out to be high level prospects. And it's just always been something that I've been curious about is, is how accurate these ratings are. We know they're accurate to a certain point, but how does one go in, go about putting these guys in this specific order? And if there were any sort of variances there, um, but I want to segue that actually, because I want to talk to both you guys. I want to hear your thoughts on this. I was having a conversation with a buddy of mine the other day, and we were talking about positional value when it comes to football. And we had a little bit of a debate going back and forth. Obviously, we know the quarterback position is arguably, and uh, I don't really think there is much of an argument. It is the most uh, most important position in sports. But outside of the quarterback, 
Do you both have a three positions after that that you would rank as the top three most important in regards to building a successful roster? Um, let's take the NFL, for example. I mean, we can do college as well, but, but Tage, I know obviously a lot of your work's focused on the NFL. How would you rank or how do you look at positional value? Yeah, no, I, I think this is like fantastic to talk about. I, I, do, I, I do think I want to touch on, on both here because I think it's different. So it is. For, That's what I, I was going to say that too, Tage. It absolutely is. Yeah, go for it, man. For uh, for 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 NFL, I think it's anything that can really affect the pass game is like that second tier of position group behind quarterback, and it's the premium positions at at those spots. So wide receiver, I think, just from a singular wide receiver, is it more important than any singular offensive lineman? Because I I, I think that even a tackle top end receivers. Yes, even a tackle, I, I do believe so. And I think we, we saw that play out with the Jamar Chase Penny Sewell debate from from a couple of years ago where Chase has just exceeded um um Sewell's words. Sewell's been a really, sure. really good tackle, but no yeah. one can really match Chase. And then on the other side of things, uh edge rusher is is also up there with me with with wide receiver because they can truly take over a game and and just like wreck these these offensive lines if they want to and and really affect the quarterback. So so that's that's the second tier. And then corner corner and, and tackle I think are also just like a smidge below uh, wide receiver and, and edge rusher from a positional value standpoint. Would you throw center shortly in that list after that, or would you put mm-hmm. uh, tackle and, and wide receiver significant gap and then center? I, I think I, I do think center center is pretty close to there, okay. and then I would start to include like safety on on the other side of the ball with center as well. Interesting, because the the topic of conversation that we were having was, and this was actually it was it was brought up on my Twitter feed by a, a guy who I think is actually interacted with you. His name's Lurch on Twitter. C, um, mm-hmm. I think he's tweeted to you previously, Tage. Uh, he's always involved in some content. He puts some good stuff out there, but. He was talking about the Packers, for example. You know, they go after the, the high level athlete guys every year, but when it regards to them drafting the positional value, uh, I would say that the Green Bay front office has not necessarily used that as one of their strengths when it comes to um, how they've selected in the draft in recent years. So it was a whole topic of conversation. I think I would agree with you in regards to, I mean, edge rusher, cornerback, tackle. And I was just curious if you guys are, what you thought from the data analytics side, if that matched up with what most people think. Yeah, and I, Kelly, I, I want to hear what, what your college uh, positional rankings are here. Yeah, so, Tage, I think I'm with you on the NFL. I made notes here to, to make sure I had it right. I'm with you. I think I, and again, I defer to you and Kinger on NFL for sure. I probably would have had Edge. I would have listed Edge before receiver personally myself. I, I really, I don't know. I feel that that position is of the greatest importance because I don't think and granted, the, the best of the best receivers are incredibly valuable. I just think there are more receivers than, I mean, almost not like to the running back level, but like the reason that running backs maybe aren't like incredibly valuable necessarily to a team success is because many of them are serviceable. And even the top end ones, like there's, there's, there's a handful there. I mean, Jonathan Taylor for the Colts was incredible in the 2021 season. Uh, he's still good enough in 2022. I mean, still one of the, the top 10 running backs in the NFL, for sure, I'd say. But the Colts have missed the playoffs the last two years despite having this incredible running back, right? Like, running back's not necessarily there. I think we know that. I'd put receiver, not not close to running back, but using the, there's the, there's more of them. There's, there's the scarcity, I think, of top-end edge rushers, and I do think that's why I'd have edge there first. So, for college football... And Bill Connolly's great about breaking all this down with SP+. 
I obviously do the exact same thing in terms of my returning production when I'm looking to generate my preseason ratings. I break it down similar to Bill in terms of positional groups in college, and you do get into individual players at certain positions. My weights are a little bit different than Bill's, um, just from the information that I have and, and the back testing that I've done to try to optimize the accuracy of my ratings when it comes to returning production. But for me, I'll start on the offensive side of the ball. If we're looking at the units, and Bill actually, for, for this year, said for the first time he has this, I've actually been on this train for a couple years now, the offensive line and the continuity that an offensive line has in, in college football can make or break a team. I mean, you look at TCU this past year with all the experience and, and, and all the starts that they had, returning snaps that they had on that offensive line, and look what they did, making it all the way to the national championship game. I mean, I think that's a very prime example of the offensive line importance. Obviously, quarterback king, we've talked about that already, being the most important. I think any positional group, though, on the offensive side of the ball, it is the offensive line. Of course, tackle being the most important position within that line. I do then think on the offensive side, similar to the NFL, I do think receiver comes in next. as as So it's quarterback, offensive line, kind of as a whole, honestly, with the tackle being the most important, and then receiver. And then on the defensive side of the ball, this is it's tricky because so, so many... The formations of defense have changed over the course of the last 10 years in college football in response to the offensive philosophies and how that's evolved on the offensive side of the ball. So defensive backs in this year's or in, in today's day and age in college football, to me, are incredibly important. I mean, Tage, when we were together last week at the Combine, we were talking about that 2019 LSU team with, with, with Arjun and Joey, and we talked about a few different pieces but Derek Stingley was at the top of all of our lists on the defensive side of the ball. He was a true freshman that year, just an absolute lockdown corner, all-American type player. Uh, and then, obviously, his, his career went from there. But that year, he was incredible. So to me, I'd say, I would say cornerback, similar to the NFL, getting, getting pressure on the quarterback is important. But honestly, when I'm looking at what carries the most weight in my returning production, sacks, tackles for loss, those things that we think are important and that get a lot of headlines, when it comes down to testing the data, back testing the data, they don't they don't grade out as importantly as some of the other things that a defense does. Of course, tackles all across the field. That's all levels of a defense, though. Passes defended, again, speaking to the importance of corners and to a lesser degree, safeties, very important. So to me, that's what it is on offense. You've obviously got the quarterback. I'm looking at the offensive line after that with an emphasis on tackle and then receiver thirdly. On the defensive side of the ball, I think it's a corner. I think it's, I mean, I might even put safety in there next. There's just, you, you play with so many corners these days. I'd say the cornerbacks and then safety, edge, somewhere in there. Something that none of us mentioned, Tage, are linebackers. It's certainly not to, not to, um, uh, not to imply that they are not important, but I think relative importance to the other players on the field. Maybe linebacker. Uh, so first round off-ball linebacker, not necessarily what you'd recommend maybe for, for most teams unless you have uh, absolutely superior freak athlete. And can you put him like can you put him in that that edge position? Like, is he coming? Is he is he always standing up like as an off-ball linebacker, or can you like creep him up there towards the line? Right. Like to me, that's a that's a big differentiator because if he's just if he is just an off-ball linebacker who is always in a two-point stance in 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 the linebacking core. I wouldn't use a first-round pick, but Tage, I, you've done a ton of work on the draft. What about you? Yeah, no, I mean, I I love that breakdown. 
there. And, and to touch on the college before I jump into the draft for a second. So Zach Japkin, uh, he was interned with me at PFF. He's now a quantitative analyst for the Eagles. He wrote a really good piece on, on PFF about how the positional value between college and the NFL is like, it's, it's different, right? Like there's different positions that make more of an impact. And that's why sometimes in the NFL, we see less premium positions go highly in the draft because their college tape looks so good. They look so dominant. That doesn't always translate to, to college to pro. So like, I, I go back to thinking about like the running game is, is much more important in college than it is in the NFL. Like running backs really matter in, in college. They have such a wider spread. We think about what Bijan Robinson was able to do, Jameer Gibbs, Deuce Vaughn, like all these top running backs this past year, what they were able to do for their offenses, I think were, were really crucial. And then I think on defense, one of the more underrated important positions in college is defensive tackle. I think what a defensive tackle can do to your defense and affect the, the whole program is crazy. Like the things that uh, these these big 12 defenses are able to run to stop the pass because they have a defensive tackle that can truly cover two gaps in the run game when they're in the 3-3-5 uh, that, that Matt Campbell and the rest of the big 12 likes to run, I think is so huge for a lot of these college football programs. I agree with you, Tage, on the defensive tackle piece. Again, I come back to, though, like my data. Uh, so I'll, I'll speak from, from my own. I, there's other people out there that, have, that may have other findings. Simply doesn't support the notion that in terms of returning production and trying to project into next year's uh, preseason ratings, just the amount of weight that I assign to sacks and tackles for loss in particular, just those two pieces, which, again, defensive tackles are more than just those two things because you're right. If you've got the attention of the offensive line, if a running back has to help out with that interior as, as protection for the quarterback, you're taking away other pieces. It's, it's all connected, right? We know this. But in terms of its importance on its own, it's just not, it's not there in the data that I have. Now, now maybe I don't have, uh, have the best data, or maybe I'm, I'm, I'm misreading my results, but that's where, that's where I am on it, which I think is personally interesting because it's a little counterintuitive to the way that I've always looked at and viewed football uh, prior to my, my uh, experience here with the analytics piece. So that's where I'm at, King, which is what, – what about you, though, King? Where, where are you at on college versus pro and the, the different varying levels of importance per position or positional group maybe? You opened my eyes a little bit to, I guess, some of the differences there. I mean, like I said, you know, you got the quarterback and my ed, edge rusher, cornerback, tackle. I think those those four right there, probably wide receiver fifth by me. So I'm, I'm pretty much aligned with you guys. Um, but it was just interesting to hear your, your perspective on it. Um, it's just an interesting discussion because a lot of teams have take a lot of different routes about that. And, you know, the, with the relative athletic score being such a big thing these days, a lot of teams are drafting off that. And um, I know we're going to cover the combine here in a minute, but it was just an interesting topic. And I wanted to hear from the smart people on the podcast what their thoughts were on it. Uh, we all bring our own take, King. I think we're all we're all in the same boat, though, with different strengths and weaknesses. Of course, let's talk about let's talk about the combine, King. Let's talk about that because Tage, you were down here in Indianapolis. Uh, you are a participant in the Big Data Bowl here this year. You came down here. You watched the presentations. Your team was an honorable mention. Tate, let's, let's let's take a step back. Let's talk about the, the Big Data Bowl for a second. Just high level. What is it for our listeners? Uh, if anyone out there is interested in maybe participating in what 2023 uh, or I guess it'd be the 2024 uh, at that point. Um, so what is it? And then tell us a little bit about your team submission. Uh, it was Arjun and Joey and you. Uh, and then let's get into the combine. Your experience there. Things you were able to do. See just. What was that experience all like? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so to, to start off, for those who don't know, and Zach and I were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, the Big Data Bowl is a competition the NFL hosts every year where they provide participants with tracking data where they have a chip in each player's shoulder pad and the ball that tracks where these objects are every tenth of a second on the field. So for the players, it's tracking their X and Y coordinates as well as their direction, their speed, their acceleration. And then for the ball, it's just, it's tracking basically the same things, uh, but without the, the direction element of it, because the, the ball isn't, isn't uh, orienting themselves like the players. But basically- How long has that really been a long. thing, Tage? Because I just learned about that this year for the first time. So the, the chip's been in the ball for six years now, since, since 2017, 2018 season. So it's, it's been there a while. The problem with it and why it can't be used for- first down markers right now is it's plus or minus six inches. So it's not an exact coordinate like we see in like tennis, for example. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that was a thing. And that was the gripe that everybody was getting all fired up about in the playoff is, is how can we not automate this? Sorry to interrupt you, but I was just curious because that was, I just learned that this year and I don't think I was the only one who just picked up that that was a thing. I, I will, I will also just add as Tage continues on here, that I understand the plus minus six inches, like I get all that. I, I I understand why we're still out there using chain link fences to to figure out or chain link uh, chains to to figure out what's going to be a first down. We have got to taste with all everything you just said about the data that the NFL makes available to a third party here, the the big data bull participants. You know they're holding some of it back. You're going to get into that here in a second with the te- technological advances that we've had in sports and as a society in the past fill in the blank 5 10 15 20 years whatever you want to call it we have got to be getting to a point soon where we are not out there with chains and with note cards and just trying to eyeball did he break this plane whether it's a first down or a touchdown the the business of the NFL I'm going down a tangent here the business of the NFL is much too large to be doing things inexactly which is what we're doing now in some of these very important aspects of the game so Tej, i have no idea if you have any insight into when we might have that technology available based on conversations you've had but if so i'd love to hear it if not please continue with uh with what the big data bull is all about and what your team did i actually think that the best solution to the whole chain link problem and the inexact science of measuring first down is is what Sam Schwartzstein came up with for the XFL, where his idea was to put the ball at the nearest yard line on each first down so that you can just kind of see where the the horizontal line is when when the offense tries to to move the 10 yards and it makes it a lot easier instead of having to bring out the chains to measure it every time you can just straight up check the the ball to the nearest hash and kind of check to to see if the uh the team crossed the first down marker which i thought was a really good idea you wouldn't have to use the technology of the chips and you would it, it would even out where like sometimes teams would move up a little bit to get to the nearest yard line sometimes teams would move back to get to the the nearest yard line as well I could get behind that. Sorry, I mean, yeah. So I definitely interrupted Tej on his big datable speech there. So let's let's get back to the big datable. Let him explain that to everybody because I'm still interested to learn more about it. Yeah, no, I mean, you're good. I, I love to talk about all that stuff, but yeah. So for for the big datable specifically, they pick a theme each year that they want people to work with on their the tracking data that they provide because this data isn't available publicly. It has to be provided uh, by the NFL. So the, the, the one that really got the big datable famous was, uh, expected rushing yards. 
and where, where participants determine based on how the offensive line was blocking, how many yards they could expect a running back to get. And then it transitioned into uh, receivers, coverages. But this year was really special uh, because it was offensive and defensive linemen, which is something that's been done by ESPN with pass block, run block, win rate. But there's there's some things that could be ironed out about those metrics. So a lot of people approached it from that perspective where they wanted to analyze these players and see how well they were getting into the backfield, if they were controlling the field, because you could all you could see all that stuff with tracking data. What my group did was we wanted to see based on a player's alignment and how the offense is lined up and what position they play and and all these different features, what's the pro- probability that they get a sack on the play uh, using using a model, and then can we build basically a dashboard where a defensive coach can come to that that dashboard and plug in all eleven players' locations on the defense, and it'll tell them each percent chance of a player getting a sack based on their their alignments. And so we were able to do that. We built um, you know extreme gradient boosted model for for all the the data people out there and we were able to deploy that in a dashboard where we thought a defensive coach could come to it and and see where the the better opportunities are for their players to get a sack on a play that's incredible taste it is so cool to me and to hear you talk about that and to know that the team members that you had i am still just floored that you guys and i say this kind of with quotes were only honorable mention. It's an incredible honor with the amount of interest and entries into the Big Data Bowl. It's incredible honor to be an honorable mention. It is, I, it's mind-boggling to me to think that there were multiple submissions out there that the judges viewed um, in, in even higher regard. So it's just, it's incredible. Well done to you and your team. That is so cool. I gotta ask, who graded out the best? And again, we're working with just a subset of weeks from a certain year. Who graded out the best in the model you guys put together? Yeah, so um, Miles Garrett was first. So I, I, I forgot to mention this, but the data that they gave was um, weeks one through eight of the 2021 season. So we weren't able to get like a ton of data to work with, but Miles Garrett had the most uh, sacks over expected uh, from the model. Uh, Trey Hendrickson also showed up really highly. That was his first year with the Bengals. And then Matt Judon, first year with the Patriots, also did really well. Hassan Reddick and Max Crosby and Harold Landry. So some some players that we would expect also showed up pretty highly. But that was pretty cool to see. And then like some of the players that we didn't think were particularly good, pass rushers showed up at the bottom as well, which was nice uh, also to, to see that kind of play out. But with more data, we would have, I'm sure, gotten like some pretty – uh, definitive results with with the players instead of just the eight weeks that we were, received. Always important for any model or hypothesis that you have, outcome that you have, to pass the sniff test, if you will. So having those big name players at the top and some ones that maybe aren't quite as prolific at the bottom uh, bodes well for the accuracy and, and validation of the model, in my opinion, at least. So, Tage, Combine, I want to ask two questions, right? Number one, there's a debate, a lot of people out there, and I think the NFLPA made the announcement this year that there are talks that they are going to recommend, I guess, disbanding the NFL Combine or making it no longer a thing and focusing on the pro day. So my two questions for you are, I mean, A, are you a fan of the Combine? Do you find it valuable? And then from a NFL team's perspective, GM, organizational staff perspective, what's the most valuable data that these teams can get out of watching these guys at the combine. Yeah, I I'm not particularly a fan of the whole like combine kind of show that that they put together where 
all these players have to have to come to Indianapolis, like kind of on their their own dime or, or their agent's dime, and go through all these uh, these these events that are like televised and and reported on and everything. Like, I do think it's better for these players to do the event, the particular events at their pro day, where they can sleep in their own bed, have whatever breakfast they want, be around their their friends and their family and the, the coaches that they're really tight with. And that's where we usually see players do better in drills at their pro day than at the combine. What the combine is really really useful for though is those formal and informal interviews that teams have with players as well as every player being in a central spot where they can get medicals done because we see like for example nicobe dean last year tremendous player at georgia i i think the best linebacker in in the country last year but because he he failed a couple medicals he dropped to the third round of the eagles and it was like this weird situation where the public didn't know as much as the teams knew about his his medical situation so that's what the combine is used for it should be those those interviews and those medicals but if the combine were to be disbanded and and it was just turned into pro days i'm sure teams could figure out a lot of that on their own they would just have to send a lot of resources to pro days and i'm pretty pro player when it comes to all this stuff so if the players are more comfortable with the pro days i feel like it should it should go with that result i know that a lot of people who work uh nfl or nfl adjacent will be sad that the combine won't be a thing because everyone has such a fun time in mm-hmm. indianapolis but i think it you know from a player perspective it, it might be the better thing to do I'm in total agreement with you, to be honest. The concept of it is phenomenal. And for all the analysts and all the folks in media who get to go observe, take notes this week, be in the mix, give those interviews, uh, they love it. And I think it's a cool spectacle, but I'm with you that I don't think there should be any sort of penalty for guys who want to opt out of the combine, want to do just the pro day. I'm, I'm pro player in that situation as well. And I think it's very interesting for you to what you say, the most valuable piece of that is the medical piece. Um, but then on top of that is the conversation that these teams get to have with these players. Although I do think the combine, as we see, presents an opportunity for a lot of players. If they do show that they have the athletic scores, they have the athletic ability, I do think there is a benefit to a certain extent for those guys that will allow them to move up the draft board. Obviously, it can go the other way as well, but I think there is some value there. And I, we see some guys every year that improve their draft stock by participating in the combine. Yeah, no, definitely agree. I think the combine is is more important than I thought it was before I started talking to people at, at teams about like how the combine kind of influences their their modeling process uh, when it comes to projecting players from college to pro. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. But if, if, you know, if they can replace that data with pro day data, I think they should still be able to get most of the way there, if not all. But yeah, no, I, I think you're definitely right with like some combine performers, like shooting up draft boards because they're doing all the same events on the same week as everyone else. Yeah, it gives you a good comparison compared to everybody else. Go ahead, Kelly. I know you were going to hop in there. I was just going to hop in with a joke. My favorite thing about the Combine, of course, is everybody's coming to Indianapolis. Gives me a chance to see people like Tage and have a good time. Um, so I'd be very sad if it went away or if it, went, if it moved to a different city. But I agree with you guys in all seriousness on some of the principles there that we had just talked about. Tage, when you were in Indy, you, Joey, Arjun, others – in addition to uh, viewing the finals of the Big Data Bowl, you were also able to uh, observe inside uh, inside the uh, convention center some of the uh, event combine events. So tell us about that. Which position groups did you see? What drills were they doing? What did you take away from actually observing that that either surprised you or you thought was interesting? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the, the combine I was surprised was eerily quiet. I'm a loud talker myself. My voice just carries. And I felt like probably the players on the field could hear me when I was talking to my friends while I was sitting there. But the the actual uh, watching the, the drills was really cool because you quickly realized that these guys just aren't the same level of like human that, that the rest of us are. Like the things that they're able to do are are out of this world. And I saw that watching Nolan Smith's combine performance i knew he was a, a good player at georgia um but like the 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 vertical jump getting 41 and a half inches and then running the 40 yard dash that that he ran was like really really impressive and just seeing that play out in person amongst the defensive linemen was like some of the coolest things that i saw there and then like seeing also the linebackers and how they flowed uh when when they were in a drill where they had to like run around uh, these different cones and like and kind of like follow the direction that the coach was telling them to like their hips are just so loose and so fluid like in person which was really cool to see as well so like it was it was overall like a really good experience it was fun to just sit there um and and, and I was I was lucky enough to be sitting with some people who uh, we're really knowledgeable about the draft and filling me in on like day three prospects that I haven't even uh, got to yet. So I was able to get some really good information from that as as I watched these these players. So we're going to go with the cliche question that everybody, the debate that everybody's talking about. But if you were to give me your top three quarterbacks in this draft, how would you rank them, Tage? Yeah. So I, I love Bryce Young and CJ Stroud. I think Stroud is going to become underrated throughout the draft process because he's so good. He's boring. Um, he's, he's like, it's the, funny we the, say the that hype. now though. Cause remember the first couple games of CJ Stroud's career when he was overthrowing everybody, the footwork, the, the mechanics weren't there. And everybody was like, is CJ Stroud going to be holding back Ohio state? And yet here we are proven to be as good as everybody projected. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, that's like, I think like, the and I like I, I like to comp CJ Stroud to Dak Prescott in a way where like I don't think anyone necessarily understands Dak because he's like so mechanical and he's such a good processor like in from from his, like a mental perspective that like people don't really get like exactly what Dak is doing on the field and I think I think Stroud's the same way like and the efficiency numbers were insane so uh you know Young is is one A Stroud is one B and then I, at, at three like I I have to go with Anthony Richardson I feel like it's it's the basic answer, but from just an upside perspective, like what he can provide you between his, his arm talent, his rushing ability. And like, most importantly, he never takes sacks when pressured. He only had like a 9% pressure to sack ratio, which was 10th best in, in all of college last year. While Levis, great arm, um, you know, was playing in a, a banged up offense and playing banged up himself, but like t- took too many sacks when pressured, I thought. So that's like the key differentiator for me. But like if Levis turns out to be good, I wouldn't be like super shocked just because that's like that's how the draft kind of works sometimes. Levis is the one for me that I'm not sold on yet. I think I agree with your top three wholeheartedly in Anthony Richardson. I hate to say it, but my opinion on him is, is he's either going to be a boom or he's going to be a complete bust in the NFL, right? I don't think that there is going to be kind of a middling level with him. I don't know why. I just kind of, that's just the gut feeling that I have on that. But I mean, outside of those four guys, I mean, are you looking at any other quarterbacks that could potentially make some noise here in the future? I, I, I like DTR from, from UCLA a lot, okay. I think. He, he has a great arm. I, I liked him in college. I thought he could, he could run uh, pretty well. And like, Ain't no Connell, maybe. I was just, I, mean, I was yeah, just I mean, trying yeah. to get you to say that, Tage. That's. 
I know, uh, I think, I think like the popular like QB5 is Jay Kaner. I think, yeah, it's always fun to see kind of these, these, uh, quarterbacks pass. Like Anthony Gordon from Washington State was like my guy like, a couple of years ago. I'm like, you know, it'd be so cool. I think the Seahawks ended up drafting him or signing him as undrafted free agent. He ended up on the Chiefs for a little bit. And I'm like, wow, I'm like, look, Anthony Gordon, Patrick Mahomes, like in the same quarterback room. Like, that's <laughs> awesome. So it's fun to, it's fun to watch these, these, uh, less, lesser talked about college prospects. Uh, do well when when it's draft season. King, I'm curious. Quarterback, the most important position in all of team sport. Obviously, that's why we're spending time on it. How do you stack them up? You asked Tage for his top three, and then we got kind of the default four. Who's your top four? I'm 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 with Tage on that. I mean, I I I don't know about Levis. I really don't yet. The physical traits with him are all there. It's kind of I mean, he's not near the physical specimen that Anthony Richardson is, obviously, but. He's a big-bodied quarterback, proven to be pretty accurate, strong arm, good deep ball. So I think there is potential there. And there was an interesting debate going back and forth that if Levis played at, say, in Alabama or in Ohio State this week, you know, he'd be the, the surefire number one pick. I saw it was a debate going on Twitter. I don't know if I believe that at all, but I think you got to go those three. Um, it's a very interesting quarterback. This draft, to me, is interesting with the quarterback position because I think you do have those two surefire studs. Then, I mean, literally outside of that, I think it's going to be a potential crapshoot as, as to how everybody else turns out. So that's what I was curious about kind of most there. You, so you agree with Tage that you think uh, Young and Stroud at 1A, 1B, you, you think they're both surefires, though? Mm-hmm, I do. I think it would be in that the Colts are the most likely team to do this. I'm sorry, Kelly. I think it would be a tragedy if the Colts were to give up and go move into that number one pick and, and draft Richardson. I mean, maybe though it'll make me eat my words, but I, I don't think that that would be a smart organizational move. There's just too much risk. The Colts have too much volatility right now. They need to go with the most surefire thing possible. So you just opened another can of worms for me. I, let me start with where I was going to go, and then I'll come back to the Colts piece too. I, I, I am bound to be wrong about this because somebody, one of these quarterbacks, one through five, one of them, is going to hit at least, at least one, and be a very good NFL player, like an all-pro type player, like just the law of averages, one of them is going to. Guys, I don't know which one it is. I agree with you both. I agree with you. I agree with you both at 1A and 1B. I, I think I think Young is one and Stroud is two. I actually go Levis at three and Anthony Richardson, since I have to, at four. I have serious concerns about Anthony Richardson and his game in the NFL. But again, I, that's not what I do. I put together power ratings for college teams. I don't try to translate performance into the NFL, any of that. This is just my own personal opinion as a football fan, someone who watches as much as I can at the college level, and then, of course, on Sundays with NFL, got those games going too. I don't love any of them, if I'm being completely honest. I don't think any of them are in 10 years, or excuse me, in five years, 10 years, doesn't matter. I don't think any of them are in the MVP conversation. I don't think any of them are all pro-level players. Now, again, I'm telling you, I am bound to be wrong because I, at least one of them will be. I just can't say with any confidence which one. And if we go back to previous years, I felt very strongly about which one is it going to be. I mean, whether it's Trevor Lawrence or whatever, like, I really think this guy is going to be the guy. I don't get that feel from any of these ones. I think they all have flaws. They all do some things really well, of course. That's why we're talking about it at the top of the first round. But I think they all have flaws. King, to your, to your next piece about it'd be a tragedy if the Colts traded up it took Anthony Richardson. I personally agree with you because I I just explained I don't think Anthony Richardson is going to be a very good professional fo- or sorry, I think he's going to be a, a fine professional football player. I don't think he's going to be an MVP or all pro level quarterback, which is what you're hoping for, what you're expecting when you're picking number one. I'm certainly not wishing ill on any of these players. I just don't think any of them are MVP level. That's that's 
And if you're picking a quarterback one, that's what you're hoping for, right? Like, this is the face of your franchise for the next 15 years. I don't know if any of these guys are that. King, if the Colts are to trade up, I, despite what I just said, I wholeheartedly support it. 100% support it. Because if the Colts move up, that means, and I don't care what they give up to get them. I don't care. You can give up the, you have to give up the four. You can give up your two. You can give up next year's one, the year after that one. I don't care. You give up whatever you have to if you think one of these guys has separated himself and is a franchise quarterback, someone who you think is going to be an all-pro, someone who you think is going to be an MVP-type player, because nothing else matters on your team if you don't have that guy. Look at, the, look, at the, look at the playoffs. The teams that win in the playoffs, the teams that win Super Bowls, they all have that guy at quarterback. So if the Colts move up, it's because Ballard, Ursay, Steichen all agree there's a guy here. And I wholeheartedly support giving up anything you have to to go get that guy because if he does hit, nobody remembers what you gave up. The Chiefs moved up to get Patrick Mahomes. Now, granted, they moved up to like 10, so they didn't, give, they didn't sell the farm to do it. But I couldn't tell you what they gave up because it doesn't matter. They have Patrick Mahomes. It doesn't matter what you give up if you go get the guy and he turns out to be that guy. My concern is that none of these guys are that guy. So, and if the Colts have, you know, one, two, or three of them graded very closely, there's no need to move up to one if you think they're all going to be about the same level of production in the NFL. So, that is much longer of an answer than I'm sure you are looking for, but whew, that's off my chest. That's how I feel about those four quarterbacks. That's how I feel about the Colts situation. I am open to reaction and criticism of that take. I agree with you, Kelly. That's all I got to say on that is is if you believe that one of those guys, you are wholeheartedly set on it, you make that move. Because, again, the Colts are such a volatile organization. They need to have some success in this draft. They have to draft a guy that's going to be long-term. It's been a while since they've really hit on that in the draft, and this is the opportunity for them. And, and I think getting trading up to one or two and having the opportunity to get Stroud or Bryce Young, I think that's a no-brainer. What do you think, Tate? I'm not making this about the Colts. They are the team that I've seen kind of mock drafts projected to be the trade-up, right? I mean, the Texans every now and then doing that too. I, if I'm a Bears fan, I love it when I see, hey, yeah, they traded the Bears in a mock draft, trade back to number two for with the Texans, so you're picking up a couple Texans picks. Then they trade back again to four to let the Colts trade up and get them there, or, or they trade back to like seven or nine, wherever Seattle and, and Carolina are, wherever. Like, if I'm the Bears and I feel like Justin Fields is my guy and – I mean, I put together the uh, the, the what-if rank uh, standings every week. The Bears just missed the playoffs this year in the what-if world. So that tells me, you know, among other things, the Bears may not have been as bad as their record was, just like Minnesota may not have been as good as their record was, as I infamously have, have stated and taken taken stuff for. So if I'm the Bears saying, hey, I, I, maybe I don't need another quarterback. Now, it's never bad to have two high-level quality quarterbacks on our team. But if I can trade back not once but twice, I'm loving that as a Bears fan. What do you think, Tage, about the, the trade-up? Who should do it? Should anybody do it? Is it worth it? Just what are your thoughts on that when we're talking about the very, very top end of round one in the draft? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, two things before I talk about the trade-up that I want to touch on that you said. I, I love the way that you laid it out. Everyone that I know that is a massive college football fan like you are, Kelly, doesn't like Anthony Richardson, which I think makes sense because he just he wasn't a great passer at, at Florida. People watched him not be able like the, the Florida State game nine for twenty seven, right? Like that's not what you want to see from a quarterback. But I think like it's different between like what the college quarterback was versus what his projection was, and like it's really hard to to untangle those. So so I get that. the The other thing is I don't think it's being talked about enough how these teams could wait for Williams or delay for May. 
right? Like I think Caleb Williams and Drake May are going to be fantastic quarterback prospects. If all these six quarterbacks were in the same draft, I think Caleb Williams would go one, Drake May would go two, and then Bryce Young would go three. So like, I think there is value in not taking a quarterback this year if you don't love any of the prospects and then waiting for, for, the, for the next year's uh, class and, and hoping you have a top pick. But from a trade-up perspective, I think that the Panthers are going to be the team that trade up from nine to to one. I think it makes sense for them because they are so far out there that they don't know necessarily if one of their favorite quarterbacks is going to be at their pick. I think the Texans are okay with staying at two because even if a quarterback goes at one, the separation between Stroud and Young aren't that much. And, but I think the Panthers are, are going to get worried that Stroud, Stroud, Young go top two. Uh, Richardson goes in the top six, whether it's to Seattle or um, Indianapolis or, or, or Detroit. And then Levis might go to one of those other destinations. And then all of a sudden they're not at, you know, they don't have a quarterback to take. So I think they're going to be the aggressive ones in trading up and trying to get one of the, the top quarterbacks. I love it. That matches uh, some of the mock drafts we're seeing. Of course, we don't actually know what's going to happen because NFL teams play this so close to the vest, but it is very fun to speculate uh, on. This is one of the most high-priority things, obviously, of the football calendar is the NFL draft. So much fun, so much fanfare. Tage, one of the final things we want to get into today, for you and King or both, I just talked about a couple NFC North teams. I talked about the Bears and how maybe their record this year was they were unlucky, maybe, to have the record that they did, and they're picking at the top of the draft as a result. The Vikings, on the other hand, I would suggest were pretty lucky to have the record that they had, um, and I think we saw that being bounced in the first round of the playoffs. Those are two teams in the NFC North. There's two others, of course. It's the Green Bay Packers. It's the Detroit Lions. We've talked about my Colts fandom here already. Kinger's a big Packers fan. You're a big Lions fan. Let's hear it. I mean, I want to hear you two go back and forth. Tage, I saw you post on Twitter for the first time in your lifetime, is that right, Tage? The Detroit Lions are the preseason favorites to win the NFC North. You've got to be on cloud nine. Kinger's got to be thinking the sky's falling because Aaron Rodgers is, I don't know, is he still in the dark? I have no idea what's going on with him these days. But just have at it, you two. What's going on in the NFC North between the Lions and the Packers? I want to hear about it. The NFC is in a transition phase right now. And, and Tage and I were talking a little bit before we hopped on here. You said it, Kelly, the Lions being the, the NFC North division favorites. First time since the 90s, I think Tage said. This is not a position that NFL fans are used to and, and definitely not what NFC North fans are used to. Um, but I think all four teams here are kind of in a unique spot right now where they are going kind of through this transition phase. phase. The Lions and Bears have been going through this rebuild. They're at the point now where they are either going to excel in this rebuild and it's going to be successful or there is obviously the potential that, that both of these you know go in the direction that I hope that both organizations uh, don't want. I don't think that there's a likely chance. I think they've put themselves in a good position. Packers, obviously, uh, with the, the Aaron Rodgers news out there, Jets in conversation. We don't know what the future is going to look like there, but still think there's a lot of good young talent. So Tate said, if the Lions, he could potentially be drinking the blue Kool-Aid for the first time in a long time. So Tate, from your perspective, what do you want to see the Lions doing this offseason? Do you want them to address the quarterback position with Goff? What are you doing if you're the GM, if you're Brad Holmes right now? Yeah, if I, if I'm Brad Holmes, I'm uh, 
I am taking a quarterback at six if I do like one of the quarterback prospects that are available to me. I think the benefit of having a rookie contract quarterback is one of the biggest surplus values in, in all of sports. And instead of paying Goff $30 million a year for the couple of years that he has left on his contract, I would rather pay $20 million less and have the opportunity to get a quarterback with immense upside like a Levis, like a Richardson that that we've been talking about here and, and really freeing up the cap room for when you have to extend Penny Sewell and Amon Ross St. Brown and a couple of the other younger players on the Lions roster right now. But then the rest of the draft has to be pretty defense focused. Um, and I think they can they can also do that through free agency, signing a linebacker or a safety to, to shore up their defense. And then they, they also need to get a, a guard and, and another tight end in there. And then like the roster could really shape into form if they play their cards right. This offseason, they have two first round and two second round picks. They have a decent amount of cap room. So like the resources are there to do it. It really just comes down to execution from their perspective. And I think that's why like the Kelly, like you mentioned, the betting odds, like the Lions are the favorites to win their division right now because I think the market is expecting them to add more to their team than the Vikings and Packers are going to this offseason because the Lions have the resources to do so. Are you feeling comfortable? You know, with you, you talk about Lions at six, they select at six, they select one of their guys. From a fan's perspective, are you comfortable with the Lions? You know, do you think that they're capable of making a playoff run with one of these rookie quarterbacks? I don't know if that would happen in year one of the rookie quarterbacks tenure mm-hmm. with the Lions, but I do think that if their goal is to win a Super Bowl, it would give them a higher probability of doing so because it really just opens up the cap space of the roster and, and allows these this team to be flexible. And Jared Goff is a, a good quarterback, and I think that he can be very successful in the right situation. But at the end of the day, you either want a top five quarterback Uh, not on a rookie deal or top 15 quarterback on a rookie deal. And I think the latter could happen in this draft. Interesting. Still playing the long game. I respect it, to be honest, because I I believe your points are correct that ultimately you want to keep this window open as long as possible. It's not quite at a year where the Lions got to go all in compared to some of these other teams. So I guess I still have some high hope for my Packers this year. I think Jordan Love has the potential to be a top 15 quarterback in the league down the line or you know potentially this year if if he plays well I don't think he's going to be in that elite level just yet but um, I still think that the NFC North is going to be wide open and the Vikings are an interesting case as well um, just what they're going to do with some of that roster turnover who do you think has the most talented roster in the NFC North right now I, I think the Packers roster has become underrated. It's yeah. interesting. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Excited to hear that. I would actually kind of agree with that, but I actually do think the Lions are, are, are very much close to closing that yet. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I mean, I think just like from a defensive perspective, a lot of us, including me, um, were like really excited about the Packers defense this past year, but like injuries played a role. Losing Rashawn Gary, who... I think was going to play himself into the defensive player of the year conversation. Like yes. really hurt the Packers. Jay Alexander had, had you know, was dealing with coming back from his injury, had a down year. The safeties weren't as good as you expected them to. So like all those things we think should regress to the mean and really make the Packers defense good. And then I, I I'm literally not joking about this. Like I've had a nightmare or two about Jordan Love to Christian Watson <laughs> becoming like a, a duo that just like haunts the NFC North for the next 10 years. So I'm worried about that as well. 
We can only hope, man. It looks like they did hit on the receivers that they drafted last year, which which is very encouraging to see from a Packers fan. But I guess the last type of conversation I want to hear, we're going to go back to the recurring theme of the evening, and that's quarterbacks. You look at the AFC versus NFC in regards to quarterback talent, and there's continued to be all these change in the NFL. So from your perspective now, Tage, how do you evaluate the NFC quarterbacks? Who's, I mean, let's let's t- let's take the assumption that Rodgers is no longer a Green Bay Packer by the end of this week. How are you ranking the NFC quarterbacks right now? <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, it's pretty tough. It's it's pretty barren um, right now. I would, I think is Hertz so number I one. Go, yeah, I, I would go Hertz. Hertz one, Dak two, and then like. Kyler Murray baked in that he's like going to be playing at 80% coming back from his, yeah. his ACL um, three. And then like, I don't again, like Stafford based on health could be four. And then like the rest of the, uh, the quarterbacks are just like Kirk cousins or like iterations of Kirk cousins in the, in the <laughs> NFC. <laughs> that's a, that's a good, that's a good comparison right there. It's, it's a barren wasteland right now. And if you're Aaron Rodgers, I don't know why you're wanting to go flirt with that AFC in, in my own opinion, like your odds are mu- definitely much better staying in green Bay. So depending well, on what that's we why get, if I'm the, if I'm the Falcons or the Panthers, I don't know why you wouldn't give Lamar the contract that he wants, like a fully guaranteed contract, he would become the best quarterback in the NFC. Like you would have the best quarterback in the NFC. Crazy. The Falcons, the Falcons seem like they've got their own internal issues. You know, they, they don't yeah. seem like they're the most functioning uh, front office there in the NFL, but I agree. And I think it's kind of a tragedy what's happening to Lamar. I will say, I think Lamar mm-hmm. probably needs to get himself an agent. Um, I don't know that for a fact, yeah. but I think an agent would probably help in this situation, but uh, the man deserves to get paid. He's uh, if you're giving Danny dimes, 40 mil a year, Lamar Jackson needs to be right there on that level. That's for sure. I didn't want to interject into the flow of that conversation. It was incredible. I have to go back, though, to some of that NFC North talk, and Tage, specifically for you for the Lions, because you mentioned a couple things that I thought were very interesting. You talked about the odds right now being in favor of the Lions in that division because the odds makers and the public or whoever think that the Lions are going to – maybe they have the best roster already, as, as, as you guys talked a little bit about – or, and or, they think they're going to add the most relative to the rest of the division via the draft and via free agency with the cap space they have. Tate, what, what do you think about this? My thinking is, because you said you really like these quarterbacks, the Lions have the number six pick and you have the number 19 pick. You mentioned two firsts and two seconds. Do you think packaging six and 19 plus maybe something else and moving up to get that quarterback of the future, get, get a top quarterback on a rookie deal like you talked about there, it's probably not going to improve your odds this year. It, it honestly would probably worsen your odds because you haven't used those picks to uh, better other parts of your rosters. What you've done is invest more for the long term in the quarterback position, which, as we talked about, if you don't have that right, nothing else matters. So it probably hurt your odds this year. With that in mind, how, do you f- how would you feel, Tage, if you woke up tomorrow and the Lions had packaged 6 and 19 and I don't know what else it would take, the, the their first their first pick of the second round to move up to number two. I don't know. I'm just making that up. Would you support that knowing that you're going to hurt your prospects for 2023 while maybe bettering them long-term? Or are you like, no, golf serviceable enough. We can make it happen this year. We can make the playoffs this year. And once you're in the playoffs, you never know what happens if we add these other pieces. How would you as a Lions fan view that? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, this is this is a great great question, great hypothetical. I am almost always in support of trading up for a quarterback. I think the toughest thing to find in all of football is a franchise quarterback. So if they believe that they can go do it and find someone who has 10, 15 years to play for your team, like I, I, I would fully support that. And like we've seen the story with golf before, right? Where uh, great situation, great offensive line, really good receivers, amazing play caller like Sean McVay was in 2018 or like Ben Johnson was last year for the Lions. Uh, have like a, a really good year where he ranks highly in efficiency metrics because of all the play action that was being used. But like eventually it tails off. Eventually defenses catch up to a quarterback like Goff. So that's why I would go be in support of trying to find that like true high end guy that can really be one of the elite quarterbacks in the league. Interesting. I, I like that. We're I'm good with that. Goff, people forget, a former number one overall pick himself, right? Like this is, it's all full circle here with the Lions right now. My only other piece on the conversation you guys were having there is we talked about the Falcons, the Panthers, why aren't they giving Lamar the deal? I, I don't disagree with that sentiment. Take back to something you said, maybe they're just waiting. Maybe they're hoping they're going to be at the top of the draft next year for that, that the, the Williams, wait. what'd you call it? Wait, wait for Williams? Is that what it is? Yeah, wait for so, Williams, delay for May. Wait for Williams, delay for May. I hadn't heard those two, but I do like them. That's very catchy. So perhaps those teams are in that boat because, again, I'm not fully understanding the Lamar situation either. I agree maybe having an agent in this specific instance would help. Tage, final thing before we get you out of here, and I have to ask about it because when we posted you as our guest uh, on the on the podcast this week, you replied with a comment and you said, I might talk about Denard Robinson for 20 minutes. We haven't talked about him yet. Feel free to talk about it for 20 minutes, but I have to bring him up. Denard Robinson, best known for me as shoelaces and or probably more so being on the cover of NCAA Football 14, the most recent version of the game that's been produced at least until summer of 2024. So the floor is yours, Tage. Let's talk about Denard. What's on your mind, man? Uh, I, I, I mean, I think this got brought up um, the other day. I saw someone post. It might have been, might have been Josh Page or something that it was like, who is the most electric college football player you've ever seen in person? And I instantly thought of Denard Robinson. And then I, I was like home, you know, this week uh, for, for spring break. And we still have the PS3 here, the PlayStation 3 with uh, NSA, NSA Football 14. And Denard Robinson's on the cover. So I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of like seeing these signs everywhere of him. <laughs> um, but yeah, like truly, truly electric player, like the shoelaces, like you mentioned, like I, that was awesome. Like, you know, when I was in elementary school like I thought I would I could go to school with like my shoelaces untied because like Denard Robinson was, <laughs> was doing it and like you know I, I know it never worked out for him like once he got to the NFL but like just like seeing his ability to like affect the game from like a, a you know mobile quarterback perspective like what he was able to do like what the big house would sound like on TV like when he broke off those those long runs was like awesome and like my like my my like hot take about Michigan football, I guess, in general, is, like, if Rich Rod got another year to have gotten, like, a real defensive coordinator in there, I still think he might even be uh, Michigan's head coach today. It was just kind of, like, the last year was really weird with the defense, with, like, how bad it was. But, like, those offenses were electric, and, like, Denard played a huge role in that. Love it. No, King, I don't know if you caught the uh, comment in there. Shoelaces, Tage saying, yeah, when I was in – elementary school oh, I, heard that. I, I was doing I the math in my head i'm like oh wait a minute he actually was in elementary school or and, very close and to you elementary and i school. you Play and college. i King are, are like high school college i think it was college even like oh my oh my goodness but no Tage, that's that's incredible i agree with you in terms of 
at, uh, electric. So that, that was where it came from then, was who's the most electric college football player? King, let's end it with this, since it's a college-related uh, topic, and we are a college football podcast, of course. Who is the most electric player that you've seen, King? I'll give you some time to think about it, because two, well, one, for me, comes absolutely to my mind. And Tage, honestly, hearing you were in elementary school with Donald Robinson, you may not be old enough to remember, Reggie Bush. So I'm born in 1992. My first memories of college football are the not very, very faint uh, but and fleeting, but the 1997 college football season, I do have some flashes in my mind of that. It doesn't really come into full focus for me, though, on like a consistent basis until about 2000 or 2001. Reggie Bush, right there in the middle of the aughts, early aughts, middle of the aughts, he is the most electric college football player that I have ever seen. I talk about my... The, the, quote, best college football players that, that are during my lifetime. And maybe this is because these are in my formative years. I'm very impressionable during this time. But I'm looking at those mid-aughts, guys. And it, for me, I always go 1A, 1B. I can never break the tie between the two. But in terms of electric, electricity, it is Reggie Bush. I put right up there with him, Tim Tebow, in terms of best college football players that I've ever seen. The two of them right there. And then also, he, he only did it in one year. But I'll tell you what, guys. If number three on my list, every time I think about it and try to go back... It's Cam Newton. What Cam Newton did for that Auburn team in 2010 literally put the offense and that team on his back and took them to a national championship. It's absolutely incredible. I think the stat is nobody on that offensive side of the ball other than Cam Newton played in the NFL, like let alone like became a star in the like played in the NFL or or drafted in the NFL. Like it's, there's some stat like that. I can't remember exactly what it was. And they won a national championship. They ran through the SEC West of all divisions. So for me, those are the three best college football players to do it uh, in my lifetime. Again, I'm impressionable at those ages, formative years, all the caveats you want to give. But caveats aside, it doesn't matter. Reggie Bush King, that's my guy. Who's your most electric player that you can remember watching? I'm going to give two names that both major impact to me that I absolutely loved watching college. Number one, Michael Crabtree. Number two, a guy similar to... Denard Robinson there, uh, a little before his time, similar skill sets, probably a little bit better throw of the football, but Pat White, West Virginia. That team, those West Virginia teams with Steve Slayton back in the day in the mid-2000s, absolutely electric. Those Big East games, they were so much fun to watch. That that team, uh, the West Virginia teams, were, were some of my favorites from our, from our youth. 2007 came yeah, best. The best Michael Crabtree. Yeah, the yeah, Michael Crabtree catch against Texas. Oh, my 2008. God. 2008. Yep. 2008, yeah. We're talking about the best, some of the best seasons of college football. 2008, the, the, the game against Texas, of course, the three-way tie uh, in, the, in the Big 12 South at that time, I think, between Texas, Texas Tech, Oklahoma. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely incredible. All with one loss. All beat each other. Uh, Texas goes to the national championship, I believe, that year. Um, and then 2007, of course, that's the Pat White. That's the Sleeve State and King. That's the game, the backyard brawl, ending against Pitt. All they have to do is win, and you're in the national championship game. Oh, my gosh. I'm getting animated goosebumps just thinking about this, and it's been... 15 years, 15 plus years, and we still remember it so vividly. King, I absolutely agree with you. Michael Crabtree, you got Graham Harrell throwing him the football, and then you've got Pat White, Steve Slayton in that West Virginia backfield. Oh my goodness, some great times in college football. We can't end it any better or more emotional than that right there. So, Tage, I can't thank you enough for, for joining us. You are an absolute rock star in the uh, football analytics space. You're going to do massive things in this world for the time being. Please tell everybody where they can find you. Plug all the things you want to plug, Tage. Twitter, podcast, work you're doing. Just tell everyone where they can find you because you're missing out if you're not taking in Tage's work. 
Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. I'm a little disappointed Cardell Jones didn't make your list, Kelly. Oh, but... shotgun. <laughs> You're right. You're shotgun. 100%. That, oh, no. that should have hey, been he, on he, it. Yeah. He ain't come here to play school, boys. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, thanks thanks for having me on. This was so much fun. I, I mean, it, I, I know we went on for a while, but it didn't even feel like it. It, it just felt like just getting together and, and talking ball, which is great. Um, yeah, for anyone listening out there, you can find me on Twitter at TEJFB Analytics at Tage Football Analytics. And then check out anything I'm writing on sumersports.com as well as listen to the Sumer Sports show that I, I sometimes fill in uh, with a with, uh, guest on here, Parker Fleming. Yep, everybody listening, you got to go follow Tage. He does great work, great graphics. Man, it was great to have you on the show. We appreciate you giving us your time very much. Uh, Great conversation tonight, boys. I, I thought this was this was an excellent episode. Had a lot of fun doing it. Some great off-season material right here. Tage, you're the best kinger. There is no off-season. This is just the summer months, right? That's what we talk about. <laughs> I'm messing with you, man. No, this was great, Tage. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Until next time, this has been the We Hate Your Team podcast, a member of the VSN Collegiate Network. <laughs>